can do that from where you're from, but not in this setting, not in our environment. We respond differently. Now, aside from the whole deception factor, what I want to highlight is the ability for one person to completely shape and change the way other people respond around them. And that's the responsibility we have in faith to act and live and walk according to the word in such a way that it inspires and changes the community around us. Amen? So that's up to all of us. We all have that responsibility. Our entire message, the entire kingdom message is wrapped up and pivoting on this thing called faith. It is the substance of things unseen. It is, it, it is the fabric of our understanding of the kingdom of heaven. Everything is hinged on our faith in Christ, whom we cannot see. Prayers give us a vehicle to get our faith where it needs to go and shift mountains. Ephesians says that by faith we are saved. That is it a gift from God. Romans says that God has given a measure of faith to each of us. Corinthians says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And Jesus said, all things are possible to the one who has faith in me. Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith and that faith is the substance of things unseen. That word hypostasis, which is the underlying state or substance and is the fundamental reality that supports everything else. It is a paradigm. If, look, listen, I can tell you a lot about faith, but I really cannot tell you what it is. I honestly do not know what this thing called faith is. So I want to explore that today. I believe God is going to release a measure of faith as we finish up here today. But I want to read from Matthew chapter 13. Just have a look at a few points in a parable that you know very well. It's often referred to as a parable of the sower. But it used to be more commonly known as the parable of the soils. And so that's how I want to look at it today. Rather than look at, looking at the sower, I want to look at the soil. So let's read from uh, verse 3. And Jesus uh, speaks to his disciples in parables saying, Behold... A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground. Two very important words there. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this passage, Jesus is in Galilee, he's talking to his disciples, he's garnered a crowd, he's now speaking to perhaps hundreds or thousands of people, hundreds or thousands, not hundreds of thousands. And um, Galilee is predominantly an agricultural area, so he's using a lot of farming terminology. He's talking about sowing seed and reaping a harvest from that seed, which is all pretty natural for them to understand until he says you'll yield a harvest 30, 60, and 100-fold. That is a supernatural level of increase that you might receive from one seed. That is not normal to them. So immediately you can imagine people are listening now because I think everybody would like that kind of yield in the physical. Jesus is talking about the spiritual, of course. So we go down to verse 18. 
and he explains it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. When tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground, there's those words again. He who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit and produces some 160, some 30. That is supernatural yield. That is a supernatural harvest that God desires for us to have from our life. That is the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit, to sow seeds in our lives that supernatural harvest should come from it. I want to get get out of the way the first one, or rather the last one. And that is the model, I guess, this one that we've just spoke about in verse 23. That is the model. That is a seed that is sown in the heart, that is humble, receives the word, or the seed spoken, sends its roots down deep into the living waters of Christ. And because of a depth of character in that individual... In time, this seed produces a supernatural harvest beyond what is normal and natural. But then we've got the other three. And what's interesting, oftentimes we read this passage through the lens of labelism. And we label, and, okay, I know someone that's like that, and they receive heaps of words, um, or they, they understand Scripture, but then I just see Satan constantly stealing that from their life. Or I see someone who's just, they just don't have any character. And so God's doing stuff, but it's, it's never really sinking in. It's never really growing. And we label this scripture on other people like that's perhaps that specific person in one of these three types. But oftentimes, if we look internally, which is what I want to do today, we can see that all of us can respond in one of these three ways at times. And this is the critical point that we need to uh, be aware of for ourselves Is Satan stealing something from our lives when God is sowing in? Uh, Are we not having the depth of character to make sure that what God is sowing into our lives is taking root? Or are we too entertained by things of the world? Are we too concerned about money? Are we too concerned about our career or our objectives in life that we are not, uh, we are being distracted from what God is calling to on the earth? And I think all of us at times can certainly receive what God is saying to us, either through the word or by the spirit, in one of those three ways. Your ability to allow seeds of faith to grow are directly connected to your willingness to receive them. In verse 23 it says, but he who received seed. And this is in its foundational sense is the state of your soil, the attitude of your heart. The spirit in which you receive is called humility. And humility denies pride and opportunity in your life. It is purely a work of the flesh and and any work of the flesh we know does not produce fruit that is worthy unto God. It's not possible. 
You know, humility, I think, is probably one of the uh, most significant missing attributes or characters in the individual, but also in the body of Christ today. Uh, Pride has turned great leaders into bosses. Humility has turned great leaders into fathers, spiritual fathers. And it's so important. I would challenge anybody that has a hard time. You know, right now in the church across the earth, we hate reproof. We really don't enjoy being corrected. And, you know, I fall into that category myself, but I am learning to love what it is to be corrected and to know that when you submit yourself to somebody in the faith, someone you trust, someone that is in the Word, someone that is uh, mature in their faith and has a character that you can trust, that when they say to you, hey, I don't believe that the way you're living is aligned with Scripture and what God calls us to do as saints, that even though it stings a little bit when they say it, we go away, we become Berean, we search the Scripture, we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us, we humble ourselves before God. You know, I've heard too many people ask God to humble them, it's not a, I mean, you can pray that if you want, but if God humbles you, it's not fun. I've been through that experience. It was a seven-year journey. It was the most painful season in my life, and it didn't stop for seven years. But when we humble ourselves before God, he's gentle, he's merciful, he's kind, and he's easy to work with. But right now in the church, we hate reproof. We don't like being corrected. And I, I would challenge Anybody that doesn't like correction, and perhaps this is you here this morning, I would challenge whether you are in the Word of God. You will get the spirit of sonship, which is the spirit of Jesus, which is humility personified. That was Jesus Christ. If there's anyone that didn't need to get down off his throne, it was Jesus. But he did. So if we get in the Word daily, if we are consuming Jesus and he is within us, I'll tell you now, you will be open to correction. You will be humble and you will submit to leaders who can speak reproof into your life and you will become a more mature believer. There's another story that I want to look at now in Matthew chapter 17. So just flip over a few pages or click over in your... You might be in the digital format this morning. This is a passage that perplexed me for many, many years, and I was confused. Um, Can I encourage you to get a Bible that um, able? It it, it has um, translations for some of the significant words, whether it be in the Greek or the Hebrew, because sometimes when we understand these um, words not of the English language, they have multiple meanings, and and it can critically change what that scripture is saying. Um, so uh, Bible Hub is really good actually because you can actually go from English to Greek or Hebrew parallel and look at word by word. Um, but here in Matthew chapter 17, um, the disciples are in training, they're in ministry and uh, it's happening. Jesus is healing, he's seeing miracles and signs and wonders and the disciples are being trained in the same signs and wonders to heal, to cast out demons Uh, and to uh, learn what the kingdom is calling them to do. But a man comes to Jesus in verse uh, 14 and brings his son, and clearly his son is uh, afflicted and oppressed, and there's a manifestation that is causing his father great grief, and he brings his son to Jesus. He says, so I brought him to your disciples, or go back rather, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him kneeling To him, Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, 
for often falls to the ground, falls into fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Later the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to him, and this is a critical part which uh, perplexed me for many, many years. He says this, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now some translations say faith the size of a mustard seed or as small as a mustard seed. My translation, which I prefer personally, is faith as a mustard seed. Um, this word faith is uh, oligopistus. Hopefully I said that correct. And it means small or underdeveloped in the sense that a child is smaller than an adult, but very much still a human. It's not, it's, we don't say a child is not a human just because they're smaller. Yeah? But it always perplexed me that Jesus is saying to his disciples, before microscopes and telescopes, he uses the very smallest thing that a human eye can see as an illustration to describe what is needed to move the very largest thing that the human eye can see. We've got mustard seed, which is tiny. It's, it's probably smaller than a poppy seed. And this mustard also, by the way, is not what we get, Keen's mustard or uh, whole grain mustard. It's, um, it's actually um, a type of uh, fig tree, if you like, and it's a, it's a fruit. And in the fruit, it's got flesh, and in that flesh is seeds mixed all the way through that flesh. So he's using a seed, which is very, very small, to describe what is required, or perhaps the amount or the type of faith required to move the biggest thing that you can possibly see with the human eye. This always confused me. I couldn't understand. And I'd heard many people preach that it was like, oh, you disciples, you have little faith. And to receive it that way, you've almost kind of got to believe that Jesus is like condescending. Like when Peter walks out on the water. Peter's just taken a great leap of faith to step out of a boat and walk on water. And Jesus goes, oh, you have little faith, Peter. Oh, you have little faith. It's like he's been condescending. It's like, whoa, what's wrong with you? Your faith is so small. But in actual fact, what he's saying is you have what is required. Though it is small and underdeveloped, you actually have what is required to move the biggest things that you can possibly see with your human eye. In the spirit, the same is the case. You... Brothers and sisters, you, saints, perhaps that are not titled with leadership or gifted, at least that you feel right now, you have a gift from God called faith. And whether it is mature or not, it is what is required to move spiritual mountains bigger than you can possibly dream up. That is what is required. And this is where we discern the difference between apistus and oligopistus. Apistus, if you put an A or an R in front of any Greek word, it means the opposite of. So I have a tattoo just here on my arm. And uh, I thought it meant um, fearless when I got it. <laughs> and I actually had a, a, a beautiful Greek woman come into our church many years ago. And she said, well, it kind of, it, it can mean fearless, but it actually means unshakable. And that's because uh, a tromidosh is the word. And tromidosh means tremor or in 
Greek or Latin means tremor, but if you put an R in front of it, it means no tremor or unshakable. That's how they get the word. So if you put R in front of pistis, pistis being faith, it means no faith. Not small faith, it means no faith. And that's the difference. Here in this passage, back in 13, where Jesus is talking to disciples, the word unbelief is apistis, no faith, because of your unbelief. You thought you could heal the boy, and that's what the father said. The father came to him and said, because they could not heal him. They were never meant to heal him. Jesus was meant to heal him. They were the vessel for Jesus to do the work. And it was because of their unbelief in Jesus that the boy could not be healed. And that's where we discern the difference between doubt in our head and unbelief in our hearts. Doubts in our head are just a weakness of the flesh that need to come into alignment with the Word of God. And every single one of us, if we are walking in faith day by day, we will have doubts. I can guarantee you of that. I've heard too many people describe faith or spell faith R-I-S-K, R-I-S-K rather. And you might feel that to do things um, in the kingdom of God that are faith-filled are risky, and I guess maybe so. But that's if you're trusting in your flesh or the things that your mind is telling you, then yeah, that'd be risky. But if you are founded on the Word of God, you are standing on what's in here daily. You are getting your feet and you are trusting in the God of the universe who is primarily a covenant keeper. You won't see many risks. You'll see assurance. You'll see God's ability to move in your life and your situations and the communities and families around you. But one of Satan's greatest deceptions, and this is right where he intersects as well, is because he will convince us that what we need is more faith. Great deception. We constantly just like, why don't I have faith like that person? And then we start comparing. Another great deception. So destructive. And we've got to find those points, those critical points, where we are walking by faith and something happens. A barrier is in front of us. A hurdle is in front of us. And all of a sudden, I'll tell you, that is right at the point whether Satan put it there or God put it there is irrelevant. At the end of the day, all authority is under God. So it's irrelevant who put the barrier there. It doesn't matter. But Satan will intersect that point with deceptions. And he'll say, you don't have enough faith to move it. You need faith like that person. If you were just like that person, you'd be able to move it because they moved it last time. And we've got to be able to discern those moments in time on a daily basis by the power of the Holy Spirit, to make sure that those things don't stop us from entering into the promises by faith. You know, often um, we've, we've sort of said, you know, when Jesus was baptised that, of course, he, 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 he gets baptised, comes up out of the water and a dove ascends on him or a spirit of God descends on him like a dove and he hears the audible voice of God saying, I'm proud of you. And we often, well, I've heard in churches oftentimes um, this being used as a type of, um, you know, compel people to get baptised because God was proud of Jesus when he got baptised. I actually don't think that God was overly proud just because he physically got baptised in the water. I believe God was proud of his son because his faith was perfected. There was no, not a skerrick, there was no unbelief in Jesus Christ. He was faith personified and he said, I do do nothing of my own authority, but of everything the Father commands me to do, I do on the earth. And of course we know straight after his baptism, he was sent into the wilderness to have his faith tested. And again, he came out perfected in his 
uh, authority from what God had commanded him to do on the earth. Satan came and tested that authority. And I'll tell you now, anytime you step out in faith, it will be tested. You can almost guarantee it. If you are called to something, whether it be small, whether it be big, as soon as you take that first step, your confidence will be attested. Your assurance in Christ Jesus will be tested. And we've got to be ready for it. We, we get too almost cocky, like when we step out and say, yeah, I've got it. And you do, but remain humble and be ready for the opposition. Because if we're ready for it, it won't distract us, it won't take us out, and we will indeed get across those hurdles and produce the fruit that God has called us to produce. All right, I googled this from the gospel of vegetablegardener.com and I found this incredibly profound. The mustard seed is a tiny seed with a load of spunk. It will grow just about anywhere, is rarely bothered by pests, and is prolific to boot. Isn't that profound? That sounds like a supernatural yield of harvest to me. Here's what's interesting, and I found out about the mustard seed. The mustard tree, when it drops its fruit off the tree, it will not self-seed. Right? There are other seeds, like tomato tree or whatever, if that, grows in the gra- if that drops in the ground, it will probably seed and grow up a, another tomato tree. The mustard tree will, will not do that. And that is because um, to get the seed out of the fruit, you need to soak that fruit in hot water for a few days. Then you need to uh, peel it and strain off the pulp of that fruit through fine cloth. When you strain, the pulp will go soggy and mushy, and then you'll be able to strain off the seeds, dry them out. um, Over, it'll take about a week that process. And by the time that is finished, you will have removed all of the germination inhibitors that are in that pulp. So that flesh actually has germination inhibitors. That means that the seed will not, if there's any of that pulp remaining on the seed, if you just flick it out with a knife or something and then plant it, it will not sprout because it has these these toxic inhibitors on there. So there is a process to remove that seed and make sure that it produces fruit. If that pulp is even completely removed, the seeds should begin to sprout within 24 hours. Keep on a container of a hot mat and the sand's temperature staying in the mid-80s to 90s produces the best results. And because mustard trees grow slowly... Waiting until your trees are up to three years old may be necessary before transplanting. And quite often we, we're so quick to produce fruit. You know, like people get saved and, and don't get me wrong, I know supernaturally God can produce fruit from our lives. But how often are we thinking about the roots, the, the unseen, the place where no one can see, no one can measure, you can't compare it, it's between you and God. How much time do we spend there sinking our roots down into the living waters? Staying there before we're transplanted. Staying there before we move into a different environment or to a different church or a different setting where it's easier and we can produce things that are comparable or visible to man. I don't believe that God expects us to have more faith. I believe that God inspects us, expects us to have more mature faith. By straining off the pulp of this world, by straining off the germination inhibitors of our flesh, 
and producing faith that will produce supernatural yields. We need to unlearn so much man-made rubbish. It's all of the flesh. We need to fundamentally becoming, uh, become childlike. Unlearn religion relating to God, the divine God of the heavens. I said before, the substance, hypostasis in the Greek, is the underlying state. It is the fabric. It is the paradigm or belief, the fundamental reality that supports everything else. And it is given to us by a measure. Judge yourselves according to the measure of faith that has been given to you, not against someone else, not against what someone else is doing or saying or being. So if we change this sentence a little bit, one word, or two words rather, perfected faith is a tiny seed with a lot of spunk. It will grow just about anywhere and is rarely bothered by pests and is prolific to boot. I, uh, I trimmed my banana trees yesterday. I have three banana trees and they were about this tall and I trimmed them. Um, actually, can the, can the band come and join me up here? There was a song, uh, what was the song? Uh, Deeper. Calling Me Deeper? I'm not sure of the name of it. Um, two years ago, two years ago, in the middle of winter, I decided to pull out a whole bunch of roses because I think roses are ugly. You can argue with me on that if you like, but I don't like them. They were red and they made me angry, so I pulled them out. And I planted three banana trees. They were about this tall. I uh, went to Bunnings, of course. And uh, there were two banana trees um, that were on the sale pile. They looked a little bit flat. They were about this tall like that. And they were a little bit cheaper, so I bought those. And I bought one banana plant, which was bigger. It looked healthy. It was the full price, and I got that one as well. And in my garden, I planted uh, two on one side, right near each other, and that, they were the smaller ones, which I got cheaper. They looked weaker, and um, I planted the good one on the other side, in different soil on the other side of the garden. Within about 18 months, the tree that was bigger stronger, healthier, and that I paid the most money for, had completely withered away and there was nothing left of it. It was just a tiny little sprout out of the ground like this. It completely died within 18 months. The other two trees grew from being this big to being this big and both of them produced a massive big bunch of bananas like this. I just cut the second one off yesterday. I wish I had some photos for you. For you. Now, the interesting thing is banana trees are not even meant to grow in this area. Then they do, we don't have the tropical climate down here for banana trees. I don't know if they've stuffed with the you know, DNA of the plant or whatever to make it grow down here. But I found that so profound that from that side of the garden there to this side of the garden here could be death or a supernatural harvest. From that far, just the soil, no difference. And in fact, those trees were on the sale pile. They were going out. If I didn't buy them, they were probably going to chuck them in the bin. But in the right soil, will grow just about anywhere, will rarely be bothered by pests, and is prolific to boot.
Hebrews 11 says this. Why don't, you, why don't you stand up? I want to pray for you, but I want to read this. I want to read this over you, and I want to pray for you as a church collectively. I ask the Lord if you wanted to do specific ministry uh, with individuals, um, and he said, no, release faith over my people. Release faith over the house of God. Because if you go back to ancient cultures, particularly in Hebrew and Judaism, they didn't use the word I or me very much. It talked more about we and us, collective, a community, a family, a people together, edified and strengthened by the faith of one another. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to pray for you, release faith over you, because God is taking you into a season where much fruit will be produced. I proclaim that, declare that over you. God has got fruit to be produced from your lives individually and collectively. But our responsibility is always to focus on our soil and sinking our roots deep into Jesus Christ, that He would produce a harvest of our lives. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which were which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it, being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise for he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when he was past the age, when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims here on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they, are, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had, had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. One church, Perth, God has prepared a city for you. It is His desire to produce fruit, to produce work in your life that will transform this 
city. God is calling you to believe greater miracles, greater signs, greater wonders, governments to shift and to see prosperity and blessing across this land, for the move of the Holy Spirit to open eyes from every deception, to lift veils and for thousands to come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The mandate is on the church, but it starts with faith, with trusting and standing on the Word of God, which is our confident assurance. It is our hope of eternity. The Word of the living God in Jesus Christ is our assurance, and we trust in it by faith. Though we cannot see, we are sure, Lord Jesus, of the promises that you have for us. So I declare today, Father God, would you release, would you open the heavens this morning, you begin to pour out a new measure of faith on individuals right now, on families right now, on this house right now, in this room, Father God, in communities around this place and in the houses of worship that meet across these northern suburbs this morning, Father God.